Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Because we have got it. And by God, we're going to read it. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Blood and Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and other places about... And this is our mail episode. Uh, mail podcast. Mail, really. mail podcast. Our, our yeah. weekly mail episode where we answer letters from you, the people. And address your concerns, address your questions, address your corrections, address your adulation, whatever you have for us. Basically, here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, this show is all yours. And we yeah. will talk about whatever you want us to talk about. Uh, you can write us in. Our letters uh, account is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can email us any time of day or night, but we'll only answer them on the show. Um, and uh, yeah, and yeah, we're, we're an open book. We try to read as many as we can. We can't. Because you write a lot, but we do our very, very best, and there's no better way to do our best than to just dive right in and try to get as many letters in as possible. So, Whitney, what do we got first? Uh, here's a letter from J. Andrew. Oh, hi. Or Jandrew. Yeah. Or Landrew. Uh, That's a Star Trek reference. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, hel- hello, J. Andrew. Uh, hello, Mr. Bibiani and Rockmeister McCool. That's my nickname now. I'm so glad that stuff <laughs> brings me so much joy. Mm. And this is spelled R O C M Y S T E R. Nice. So it looks like Rock Mister McCool because <laughs> I have missed. Uh, so much like most of the movie loving world in the West, I've been anticipating the now past Academy Awards. Now, I know you said you're done talking about the Oscars until the 2021 season, <laughs> but I have a burning question that you will hopefully drag you back, kicking and screaming into the topic. Do you know how the Academy works? I'm curious about the process of who decides the nominations each year, then who votes for the nominations. Where do these people come from? (laughs) And how do they get to be a part of these groups? You mentioned something about being sponsored, like AA. But <laughs> no, not like no, not like that. AA. But we'll even, that. E- even that was new to me. Are they made up of previous Oscar winners? I've never had this process ever actually explained to me. And as far as I know, seeing who gets to nominate for the categories and who gets to vote on the actual winners is like a Monty Python sketch. Ah. It's like trying to spot a member of the Masons. <laughs> Do you remember the the Monty Python Mason sketch? Vaguely. It's like how to spot a Mason. One of them is. Uh, Wearing a bowler hat, nice shoes, and underpants with a banner across his chest that says "I'm a Mason." Also, gigantic antlers. That's well, that's a Mason, yeah. Or they're really weird handshakes. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, on a side note, I don't suppose I could get a brief opinion on what you guys both think of Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard. I'm assuming you guys are watching because, well, I assume you're like me, simply a fan of Trek and are interested in what they're going to take, uh, where they are going to take it. Personally, my issue with the new Star Trek is similar to the new Star Wars. They are rehashing old stories and unwilling to let old characters die and rely on those. Hence a show about all our arguably favorite Captain where we all get to cheer with excitement when he says engage or cramming, spoiler warming, Captain Pike and Spock into Discovery. But the Academy, who are those people? <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks for the work. I listen all the time while I'm at work. It makes the day a little less lonely on my shipping dock where I'm the only one. Oh, wow. Okay, well, oh my that, that's a heavy responsibility, yeah, yeah. and we'll take that really seriously. Uh, we'll get to the Oscar stuff uh, second. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for Star Trek, I'm actually – I only saw the first episode of Discovery, and then I decided this wasn't quite good enough to buy <laughs> CBS All Access. Uh-huh. So although they, I do they, love, give, they give away the first one for free. Yeah. And then it just it wasn't quite good enough for me to just to buckle down, and I'm I'm on a budget, so uh, I'm behind on Discovery and Picard. I would love to watch both shows, but it's a matter of budget. However, when we on our Patreon exclusive podcast, all our yesterdays, when we mm-hmm. review every single episode of Star Trek 
ever and in production order. When we get to them, obviously, I will watch them. Yeah. Uh, but Whitney, just to, to appease <laughs> our listeners, because uh, I know you've talked about it on all our yesterdays, but I don't think it's come up on the proper... Mm. Free show. Yeah. Tell people what your what your thoughts are on Discovery and Picard so far. Um, Discovery is the pit. It is okay. it is a bad show. It is incredibly badly written. Uh, they don't understand uh, what made Star Trek appealing, and they're trying to turn it into this new kind of thing. And it's not even a good non Star Trek type science fiction show. Yeah. Um, if they were like taking Star Trek in a new direction and like sort of had a vision for what was going on, that would be okay. Mm-hmm. If you watch Star Trek Discovery, here's a game you can play with Star Trek Discovery. Watch the opening credits and count the number of producers on the show. Because you have, like, the writers and the directors credited during the opening theme song. There are 21 producers on the show. Oh, my God. Yeah. They are... Too many cooks? Yes. There are so many people who are trying to put input into this thing. And uh, the original creator, Brian Fuller, had it, like, kind of taken away from him and reworked while they were already shooting stuff. Yep. Uh, just it, it. Nobody has a clear idea as to what this thing is going to be, and it really shows. Mm. And they're changing all of these things that don't make any sense. Uh, a lot of Trekkies have complained that the technology doesn't match up. That doesn't bother me so much. Like they have mm-hmm. super advanced technology, even though it takes place before the original series. Uh, what, whatever, I can I can squint and and tilt my head and pretend. There are things Same. I'm willing to forgive and things. Uh, the, they also changed the Klingons a lot. The dress and the, the Klingons actually look a lot different now. But it's well, they look been, like the, they look like the J.J. Abrams versus Klingons, don't they? Uh, not not quite. They changed them even from that design. So yeah, they, they speak Klingon, but now it's like a slightly different version of the Klingon language, yeah. and yeah, the, the society operates a little differently, and yeah, the Klingons look dramatically different. Yeah. Uh, into the first season, they were all bald. They were a hairless species. They decided to kind of backtrack on that and say, no, in times of war, Klingons all shave their heads. Oh, yeah. Because we've seen that before. You know, mm-hmm. like so, in stories. So in in, Dis- in Discovery Season 2, they all had the long Klingon hair again, but they still had the big foreheads. Mm-hmm. Oh, anyway, gosh. moving on it's, to Picard. Moving on, and, and the show is all about war and combat in the second season. They're, they're really trying to cover up the fact that they invented all of these ideas for Star Trek. Like, they can teleport anywhere in the galaxy with the spore drive. You, you remember the spore drive, right? I remember you telling me about the spore drive. Yeah, evidently there is a network of fungus everywhere in space. Like, microscopic space fungus. Uh, they call it the mycelial network. And a mycologist on the Discovery has figured out how to wire the engines to tap into this network that essentially like pulls them into the fungus dimension and redeposits them anywhere they like. So we don't really need... So we don't need... Any, there's no there's trekking. There's no trekking. Yeah, you just, you just pop just, up just, wherever you want. Yeah, the ship just sort of spins around yeah. and then appears The entire, like, every want. other episode of the show where they were just wandering around the universe and found mm-hmm. something interesting, yeah. they'll never do that again. So a show called Discovery, they're not discovering anything. They discovered the spore drive. I suppose so. And and in, in a, a conceit I actually kind of like, they had to like wire it, the the guy who discovered this network figured out that the only way to tap into it was to use the DNA from like this gigantic space tardigrade that was floating around in space and can communicate. Like you he do. took some of that that DNA and put it in himself. Gross. So he's like part tardigrade now, and then he could has to plug the engine into his own body in order for this thing to work. Anyway, Picard. Picard is just it's a nostalgia fest. It's it's better, I think, because Patrick Stewart is such a dignified performer. Like, one of his talents on the original Star Trek was, 
lending some actual weight to the ridiculous dialogue he was given. Mm-hmm. Like, and he's trying to speak alien languages and talk about these alien concerns, but it made, he made it seem very serious. Uh, Patrick Stewart tells a story about how uh, in the early season, uh, in the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, he felt that all of his co-stars were playing around too much. And so he actually... On, on his own uh, motivation, called all, the entire cast into a room and said, I think you guys aren't, ha- aren't taking this seriously. You guys are, like, laughing a lot and you're goofing around on set a lot. And uh, Denise Crosby said, come on, Patrick, how else are we supposed to have any fun? And he remembers very, uh, very sternly slapping, banging his fist into his, to his palm saying, we're not here to have fun. And it was that moment when he realized, oh, shoot, I'm a dick. <laughs> he says, we're not here to have fun. Oh, darn, did I just say that? <laughs> and he learned to loosen up and actually enjoy no, himself after yeah. that. But, yeah, he, but he's, you know, he's a classically trained actor. Yeah, he, he wanted, taking to, it really seriously, he wanted everybody but... else to take it as seriously as he was. Yeah, yeah. So you bring him back. He's in his 80s now, and you bring him back to lead a new series. First of all, he's in his 80s. He can't do the action stuff. No, he's, he's, he, he's gotten older. There's a scene where he has to run up a staircase and he's barely doing it because he's 83. You know, he no, can't. it's what? Listen, listen, he's 83. I don't care. Like, I know modern medicine is awesome. Uh-huh. 83 is 83. 80, even a spry 83 is not leaping over, you know, yeah. handrails and kicking guys in he's the just, face. He's just not as spry as he used to be, yeah. and nor does he have to be. So they're it's trying, unreasonable to expect that. I, I appreciate that we are starting a brand new science fiction series with an 83-year-old actor. That's yeah. that's pretty fun. Yeah. And it is about... They're introducing these new conceits about how Picard is reacting to the way the world of Star Trek has changed, and some of the changes aren't Roddenberryan, but they're okay. Mm. And he's keeping it all together so far. Well, that's um, cool. we're only as of as of this recording, we're only three episodes in, so we'll see how well this goes. They've introduced a lot of dumb ideas. Yeah, maybe it'll pull together. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Faith in the show is at yeah. a low, but P- yeah. P- Picard is is at least uh, running at a better clip than Discovery. Well, that's good. Uh, as for the Academy Awards, and thank you for asking this question. I feel like it's something that. There's a lot of things about the industry and the art form and the medium that mm-hmm. once you know them, you kind of take them for granted for a bit and you kind of forget you have to mm-hmm. talk about them every once in a while. Otherwise, people who are relatively new to it don't know how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do not have all of the rules of the American uh, – sorry, the um, uh, association – what is it? The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. How do I keep doing that wrong? The Academy <laughs> of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I know that. Mm-hmm. I keep saying it wrong. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, AMPUS, mm. uh, for short, uh, they run the Academy Awards. Yeah. Uh, the society is comprised of industry professionals. Mm. Uh, in order to be a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, mm. you have to be invited. Now, typically, though not always, mm. if you're nominated for an Academy Award, you are invited. Uh, not only you're invited, I think you you get a lifelong membership. Oh, you get a life, you used to get a lifelong membership anyway. Mm. If you're a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, you got a lifelong membership. Recently, they revisited some of the rules because one of the issues with the Academy and the issues of representation was that uh, the Academy was like staggeringly, overwhelmingly old, male, and white. And a lot of the people who were voters 
weren't even they had retired. They weren't even working no. in the, the industry anymore. They didn't or necessarily they didn't, represent uh, the industry anymore. And so what they did, and I think they might have backtracked from this a bit, was they instituted a new rule, which was if you're no longer working regularly in the industry, uh, and if you didn't have like X, Y, and Z a much like work to your name, mm-hmm. uh, you might not be an active member of the academy anymore. We might not ask you to vote anymore. And a lot of people were really mad about that, and I totally get it. Mm-hmm. But that was something that that was one way they tried to deal with that. But basically, how the voting system works is this: there are different branches of the academy, one for each discipline. So, for example, there's the actors branch, there's the mm-hmm. directors branch, there's the costume designers branch, etc. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, one per academy award. Uh, and if you are invited to the Academy Awards, you're typically invited for only one branch. It's my understanding a few people who wear a lot of hats are part of multiple branches. Mm-hmm. Writer, directors might be part of the writing branch and the directing branch. Yeah. Every the, year, the, the, the largest branch is the acting branch by far. Yeah, by a wide, wide, mm-hmm. wide margin. Um, now, how the uh, actual voting process works, and again, this is a broad overview. There's a lot of detail about this online. You can look mm-hmm. up if you want. Uh, how it works is uh, every year you get to nominate five films or if your performances or technical achievements uh, per category that you nominate for, and you also get to nominate films for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. You don't get to no- if you're a member of the hair and makeup part of uh, uh, Ampus, you don't get to nominate actors. Yeah, you get to nominate for hair and makeup, but you also get to nominate for best picture. Everyone nominates for best picture. Everything else is highly specialized. With the idea that the people who do that job know best who to nominate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after the nominations are put together, everybody is allowed to nominate. Allowed to vote for pretty much every award. Sometimes there have been rules in place mm-hmm. that you need to prove that you've seen like all of the. F- uh, international features before you can vote for that mm-hmm. because they're not necessarily all readily available. Uh, but typically speaking, you can vote for every single ward. Right. And that's how it's done. The only difference is uh, everything else is a pretty much a straight ballot, but for Best Picture, it's a preferential ballot. You rank them. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they're trying to find the movies that have the most support. So they try to find the films that ended up at number one the most. Mm-hmm. For example, whatever had the highest percentage of overall support. That matters, and then they go to number two of it. So they don't have a clear winner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as for sponsorship, this is something I found out about, and I talked to, um, I interviewed Jackie Weaver once. Okay. And uh, we talked about, so I forget how it came up. We talked about the Academy Awards. I think she was nominated that year for something. And, um, and she told me that in order to, like, become a member of the Academy, you have to be invited and so you have to find people who are willing to sponsor you saying this person's wonderful and they should be a member of the Academy and apparently mm-hmm. one of her sponsors was Robin Williams. Oh, okay. Like Robin Williams was a huge Jackie Weaver fan and he helped <laughs> nice. make, make sure she became a member of the Academy. Yeah, you can't just, it, it's sort of like editing your own IMDB page. You can't do it yourself. Yeah. Like someone else has to do it for you. Yeah, so having a sponsor isn't like you have like, you know, a mentor or someone you call all the time. It's, it's just someone, someone who vouch, vouches yeah, for vouch you. for you. Yeah, someone who says this person should be part of the part of the secret club. Mm. Um, it's not secret. The uh, people who are members of the Academy, I believe it's public knowledge now, they added a huge huge, huge number of people to the Academy in an attempt to make it less overwhelmingly old male and white. Mm. Um, they That's still the dominant demographic, but it's getting better every year. 
Um, and that's basically that. Again, there's nuance, there's more detail, and you can find that online if you want. But that's essentially how it works. Mm-hmm. Am I, am I am I missing anything? Uh, that, no, that's that's all right. Okay, yeah. good. All right. Um, so I hope that I hope that clears mm-hmm. it up a little bit. And again, there's more detail if you want online. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that they're less opaque about it. It, mm-hmm. it did used to be this kind of big secret, and you didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't and, have to be. It's a bunch of and, actors. Yeah, it's and, like the academy. And cinematographers it's just, yeah, it's just a, a, a bunch of yeah, a bunch of people who are in in this pr- pretty large voting body. Yeah. And so when people say people, when people yeah. say the academy, they're addressing everybody in the room. Yeah. Uh, they all belong to the academy. Yeah. Um, With the idea that when, you're getting an award yeah. from your peers, therefore it would mean more. When I was a kid, I thought the academy. Only exposure to the word academy was police academy, so I thought academy was like some sort of like training school. Oh my god, I really want to see a police academy movie, but it's all new members of the academy, motion picture arts and sciences. Oh, it's like this really raucous sex comedy where yeah. they're all just sort of like confronting the old racist guard. Of, yeah, like, so it's like, oh, who, who who joined up this year? Okay, so we got this year we got Florence Pugh, and we got uh, I, I don't know who else is going to be known. All, the, just the whole cast of Little Women. Yeah, the whole the whole are, young are cast re- of Little Women. Wreaking havoc. Yeah, <laughs> just getting drunk and rowdy, yeah. and, and and like Judy Dench is there, and she's trying to keep these kids in line. Oh and, gosh, and and the and the, the Captain Harris part, the G.W. Bailey part. Yeah, Tom Lennon. Is he a member of the Academy? Yeah, of course he is. That's not it, of course. Well, he's, he's, I imagine so. He's written many successful screenplays and he's acted in feature films. It's not necessarily the case. Sometimes there are people who are not members. I remember when they added a ton of names to the Academy. Uh A lot of them were people like, how were they not in the Academy? Oh, okay. well, it was maybe, full maybe, of people. I was just really confused by because it used to not, be they. Yeah. It used to be they only add, uh, invited a certain number of people a year, uh-huh. and I forget what it was. It was like twenty mm-hmm. or whatever, like that. But you know, you can't just everyone wasn't in there, and mm-hmm. then they had this huge influx. And I think it got a little better. Okay. Anyway, what's our next letter? Uh, here's our next letter. This one comes from Adam. Hello, Adam. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney. Here is an immediate reaction to your most recent episode of Critically Acclaimed, released just a few hour ago, hours ago, but I'm going back for this one, so this is actually an episode from back in December. Okay. Um, uh, oh, I never wanted to hug Whitney more than when he, listening to his, to his review of A Hidden Life. He Aww. said that this movie explores similar themes as Hacksaw Ridge, but far better. Thank you for that. I hadn't seen A Hidden Life yet, but I have been hating on Mel Gibson's last movie ever since I saw it in theaters in 2016, even though it was a critical marvel. It's so refreshing to find someone who agrees with me. I know Hacksaw Ridge is allegedly a true story, and I'm not hating on the real man, but I absolutely loathed the confusing message of the movie, which tried to be pacifistic, but at the same time reveled in showing gore and violence. Mm. Also, I kept wanting to shout at the screen, Hey you, compromise! You enlisted willingly, you've just gotten married... But the army wants to execute you because you refuse to touch a gun. The Bible forbids you to kill, but you don't say a word about touching a weapon. You don't have to use it in battle. Just complete the damn gun training and you will make it easy on everyone. Man, that was a frustrating movie. Yeah, I have issues with Hacksaw Ridge. Mm. Yeah, I no, just the issue that it, it tries to be about pacifism when it's not at all. No, again, it's, actually, again, it's actually about serving the war effort. Well, again, Truffaut had that whole bit mm. about how it's impossible to make an anti-war movie because mm. once you depict war, you make it grand and dramatic. Mm. And I think there are exceptions to that, but boy, did Hacksaw Ridge illustrate the fundamental yeah, problem. Yeah. 
this isn't the first time that I find myself having the same controversial opinion as Whitney. Uh, I also hold that uh, Alien in much higher regard than Aliens. I actually prefer Alien Three over Aliens. Uh, I just Fair like enough. the I just like the concept of one monster and a bunch of ill prepared people more than essentially two armies clashing. Yeah. Oh, and I don't want to revert to your most heated discussion ever. Yes, the one even more heated than the Man of Steel one. But just like Whitney, I wasn't impressed by the cabin in the woods. <laughs> That's fine. That's yeah. The, the, the cabin in the woods defenders have become a lot quieter over the years, I think. Um, it didn't work for me as a horror movie, and I think the screenplay was clever as it thought about itself. Uh, the screenplay, uh, I didn't think the screenplay was as clever as it thought about itself. Maybe I have all the internet to blame for making me think that was that the twist was going to be absolutely mind-blowing, but it wasn't. I had too high expectations, I guess. So there you go. Now that everybody hates me, I can take Whitney with me and go. we can go and live on an island together. <laughs> uh, Bibbs, sorry this letter was all about Whitney. I don't love know. you too, man. Thank I'm, you. Uh, I'm not a Schmodown fan anymore, but I always watch and cheer when you play. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah Whitney's cool. Mm. I, I don't. I don't fish. agree with him about everything. I think he mm. can be a bit of a curmudgeon. But what I love about your opinions, and even something that, I, I, again, I don't nothing against Alien. I just mm. think Aliens is also great. But like even something like Blade Runner. Some people ask, like, what's the movie you and Whitney disagree on the most? I think mm. it's Blade Runner. It might be Blade Runner. Probably. Yeah. Like we disagree on Cabin in the Woods, but I see your point. Maybe it's cleverer than it is, quote unquote, good. Mm. But yeah, Blade Runner, I don't get how you don't like that movie. I just I'm ba- every time I watch that movie, I'm like, Whitney would love this. Why <laughs> why is this so hard? I don't understand. Yeah, well but, like it I take takes again, me I, a few sittings to get through it because it's so boring. Okay. I think it's slow. And I think That's it's fine. And I think I it's think kind it, of I think it's measured. I think it's devoid of ideas as well. I think it's <sighs> it, it it faints in the direction of being like it asks really like it looks like it's about to ask a really important question, and then it never really asks it, and they think that kind of being near an interesting question is enough to keep my interest, and then it just sort of stays there okay. throughout the rest of the movie. I don't think it actually, like, delves into any of the actual ramifications no, I don't of some think it, of the I things it, it might be I think implying. I think people are too busy living to delve, and I think that's one of the great tragedies of their existence, but uh, look... Mm. Fair enough. Uh, I'm sure there's an email in here all defending all mm. of my decisions and saying Whitney's ideas are poo. I'm sure the next one is going to be all about how great Bibbs is, and we'll be able to move on. Yeah, and here's a, another similar one. We actually get this question a lot. This one oh, yeah. comes from Christopher. Uh, hey there, my two favorite film critics. Oh, thank you. Um, we all have different opinions, of course. Do you ever find yourselves not liking a film that's mostly beloved and regarded as a classic? And you feel a little bad for not being with the general consensus. My own example include uh, both of the Raid films, Old Boy, the original The Wicker Man, and the films of Ingmar Bergman. Mm. Uh, thank you for taking my question, Christopher. Um, yeah. Um, mm. uh, yes. Short answer, yes. Mm. Um, you watch enough movies, you're going to see a lot of the classics, a lot of the movies that are really, really popular. And usually, if they're a classic, if they're popular, it's at least pretty easy to see why. Uh-huh. It's easy to see why this connected with people, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to connect to you. Every art form is highly individual once you get right down to it, because all that you really have in the end, no matter how many other ideas you hear about it, no matter how many articles you read about it, mm-hmm. no matter how many podcasts you listen to about it, it's just you and the film while you're watching it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's no guarantee you're going to like it. Uh, I've never been into Chinatown. Oh, yeah. I, we talked about this before. I just, there's something about it. Like, I get it. Mm-hmm. I find it like Blade Runner. I actually find it really slowly paced. <laughs> um, I don't. I, the, the peaks are really interesting, but the valleys in the middle are just 
just kind of drab okay. to me, which is weird because, I mean, I know Polanski's, like, you know, a filmmaker who's difficult mm-hmm. to like in a lot of ways, but his early stuff is really significant and influential, and I can get into the early stuff. Like, mm-hmm. Rosemary's Baby is great. The Tenant is a really great movie. I, I really can't, like, Chinatown, for whatever reason, just leaves me so flat and cold. And I just, mm. and not in a good way. Not in like, oh, how chilly, how cynical <laughs> and interesting. It just basically, oh, so that happened. Okay. All right. I feel bad for his nose. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's Faye Dunaway really got the bum end of the stick. Like, it's just, mm. it's really, like, I, I don't really get into that movie at all. And I know a lot of other people really appreciate and respect it. I think it's an excellently crafted motion picture. It's, but It's a great L.A. movie. Yeah. You know, it's like I, one of the best L.A. movies. And sometimes I revisit these things years later and I realize that the person I was when I initially saw them mm. is no longer who I am. And maybe I'm in a different place right now. And more I can, mature, and I, better educated. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I have different ideas in my head. And ergo, this movie might work better on me sometimes. And sometimes... Mm-hmm. It never clicks. Eight and a half. I've tried it so many times. Never. I hate that <laughs> it's, movie. It's been a long time since I've tried eight and a half, and I, I feel like I need it. Need to give it another go. I probably might like it now. You think? But I, I saw. The, you think you're that up your own ass? Maybe I saw eight and a half for the first time when I was eighteen years old, and I don't think I was really prepared for it. It's like, mm, like I didn't even get Vertigo at the time. It's like, well, Vertigo, Vertigo is obtuse in a lot of ways. Vertigo is a great film once you studied film. Like yeah. I think you need to know a lot about the filmmaking process and the aesthetics of film and the way film is constructed in order to just kind of appreciate the nuance of what Hitchcock was doing in that one. I also think you need to know a lot about Hitchcock and his filmography. Yeah. I yeah. think it really helps. That's one of the reasons why I don't think it's the best movie ever made. Uh, I, just, I think it's mm. you have to know too much about the behind the scenes in order to appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Nah. Um, meanwhile, I'm watching Rear Window. Anybody can watch Rear Window. Rear That's easy to get into. Rear yeah. basically a perfect movie. Like, <laughs> it's one of the perfect movies, if yeah. you ask me. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, eight and a half is another one for me. Um, the one that I kind of feel bad about because I feel like I'm alone on this one mm. is uh, Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. Which yeah, I, weird I, thing I, 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 saw, I saw it when, uh, when it first came out. I saw it in theaters. Um, mm. It's it's very atmospheric. Maggie Chung looks awesome in the in those dresses and that hairdo. Mm. It's exquisitely photographed. Just all just every every single shot is just unbelievably gorgeous to look at. And I wish something would have happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the whole like, point I, is that nothing is can that, happen. They they're they're too I, they're too mature. There's so much more like. Mm. They're so much more, like, dignified and mature than the mm. people who are cheating on them that they right. can't even have the pleasure of an actual affair. And yeah. there's something really extra tragic about that. Uh, I, I ex- think that's beautiful. Extra tragic and not very interesting to watch is All the problem. Right, um, and, uh, you know, In the Mood for Love regularly makes best of the decade lists. And people mm-hmm. call it up as, like, you know, a, a bastion of new Asian cinema. And mm. it's just not one I've been able to get behind. And it's not Wong Kar Wai. I've actually, oh. I actually love other Wong Kar Wai films. I really love Happy Together. I've never seen Happy uh, Together. Chunking Express blows me away mm. every time. I love that movie. Uh, and, and here's where I confess I haven't seen Chunking Express. Oh, you should. It's yeah. great. Uh, and I have nothing against it. It just hasn't no, no, been it, in my field of vision yet. There's only so many films mm. you can see. Um, I'll, a more recent example mm. uh, uh, for me is Call Me By Your Name, a movie which mm. I basically respect. But for me, and I know people are like, oh my god, it's the most romantic thing ever. Mm. Oh my god, it's so romantic. And I want to be I want to be romanced by this. I want to be romanced uh-huh. by Army Hammer on an Italian villa. Like, it sounds <laughs> great, right? Here's my problem with that movie. Uh-huh. Army Hammer looks like he's 15 years older than Timothy Chalamet. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be only a couple of years apart. 
Yeah. But when he looks that much older, it completely changes the relationship dynamic, and it goes from, I know it's supposed to be romantic, but mm-hmm. it, it comes across off-putting to me. And Why? I just, I can't get on the wavelength of that movie. Other people can. Although I can appreciate that other people don't see that as an issue, mm-hmm. and if you look at the actual text of the film, it is actually really beautiful, but I'm distracted. Okay. So maybe it's just me. I, I think, don't know. I think maybe I just think Harry Hammer looks old. I think a big part of that movie is a weird sort of Edenic quality that it has. First of all, I mean, the forbidden fruit thing is all all over that because they're just wandering around in the garden and eating these apricots that are falling off the tree. Do you know the origin of the word apricot has the same root form as the word precocious? Wow. That's something, that's something they said in the movie. I don't and, uh, remember that at all. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the adults are all busy, like, going down to the beach and hauling ancient art out of the water right? and having discussions and re- bu- reading books about art in these plush libraries. Like, you sold me on this vacation and, yeah. experience. Like, I want to go on this like, vacation. What are we having for dinner? I don't know. I'm going to catch it out of the ocean. You'll have the freshest <laughs> fish you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and meanwhile, while I'm trying to figure out whether or not I want a bone arny hammer, I get to have sex with the hottest. <laughs> Italian women in the world. Wow, what a tragedy you're living. Oh, excuse me. I, know, everything... I weep into this fireplace. Yeah, everything is so hard for you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, did I interrupt you being also a brilliant concert pianist? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, listen, I, I get it. I get it. Romance movies are very often, uh-huh. um, you know, they're fantasies. They're, they're better than life. Yeah. That's a big, big part of it. But, well, like, there's a level here where mm-hmm. I just I, I disconnect on there's, Call Me By Your Name. There's a lot of movies that uh, that uh, Roger Ebert called luxury porn. Yeah. And they're, they're essentially exist to sell a lifestyle rather than tell a story. The films and of Nancy Myers. N- the Nancy Myers films. Uh, yeah. Under the Tuscan Sun. You know, films yeah. where people go to exotic locales and just get to live in a posh room and money is not an issue. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think Call Me By Your Name, I think it's a lot more artistic than that, but I think that's a really important aspect of it I is know, the luxury porn I acknowledge aspect. the craft behind it, but yeah. on some base level, mm-hmm. they're just kind of be like, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to fall in love here? Yes, I would. Can I go? No, no, no. I just have no, to watch just, just watch a movie. Yeah. All right, well, like, and you're, I, understand, I guess. I understand you're heartbroken. Go back to eating fresh fish and <laughs> being, having a dad being, who truly understands you. A dad you who understands you and being young and good looking and having your whole life ahead of you. Yeah, what a tragedy. <laughs> Again, I understand why people love it. There's just things that make me disconnect. All right, let's move okay. on. Um, I, I actually really like Love Me By Your Name. I make fun of it, but I, I do like the Yeah, you can make lot. fun of the things you love. I make oh, fun absolutely. of a lot of things I love. Um, right. And again, I, I respect it fine. I just mm. think Army Hammer's a little miscast. All right. Uh, here's a letter from David. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. Hi, David. I hope you're both doing well. I am. Thank you. My finger's feeling better. Uh, oh, I, <laughs> I I have a scar on my finger now, by oh, the way. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how well publicized that is. No, you, uh, well, I, I didn't really talk about it much, but I, I sliced my finger open uh, in, in, an, in a knife fight. Yeah. I fight with um uh, it was it was with uh, Lars Ulrich of Metallica. Yeah, and you were fighting over um uh, a Ch- uh, a Chuck Klosterman review. Chuck Klosterman was there. And, Chuck Klosterman was there, uh, and, and, um, and, and and we were at Joan Jett's house. Yeah, and she she was busy making the risotto, so we just got in a big fight out out by the third pool. And um, yeah, with your um e- uh, apricots repli- <laughs> and and your replica swords from the Princess Bride. Yeah, that's it. No, well, he had a bat left that he brought himself. Uh, oh my god, he, so pretentious. That he made in his own forge, which is heated uh. by real lava, and uh, and we got into big knife fight, and and I said, hey, hey, Werner Herzog, can you p- pitch in here? He says, no, I'm busy filming, and uh, and and we got in this big fight, and he swung his bat left, and he cut. Him I was cutting a bagel. It was stale. <laughs> 
It was stale. I was cutting a bagel and I sliced my finger. And here's um, a little here's a little backstory for those of you who listen to the or, or uh, listen to or watch the movie trivia showdown. Mm. Uh, that happened so soon before his upcoming match with uh, mm. between Deep Thirteen and Tom and Paul. Yeah, watch that. I have a bandage on my finger. Yeah. There's like five fresh new stitches in my finger. Yeah, that was that morning. We weren't sure he was going to make it in time. We had to like change the schedule. He was like texting me like, "Tell Christian totally. I'm in the emergency room. I'm in the emergency room. room. I'll, I'll be there as soon as I can." Yeah. So he was like really like freshly scarred that <laughs> uh, was pretty funny yeah. but he's fine now I'm fine now uh, but back to your letter David I hope you're both doing well I finally saw Parasite this week and I absolutely loved it it Yay. easily jumps straight to my personal number one of the year and it's up there for being among one of my favorites for the decade as well uh, before I saw it I made the point to watch all of Bong Joon-ho's films in the lead up I managed to catch all of them with the exception of Barking Dogs Never Bite which is impossible to track down a copy of in the States my favorite Bong Joon-ho film movie pre-Parasite was Memories of Murder Memories of a Murder right? I Mem- it's a memories memories of, of memories of a murder. Yeah. I'll admit I've never been a huge police detective movie fan, likewise with serial killer movies, but this movie affected me in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. It left me utterly speechless. It's memories of murder. Memories of murder, okay. And I was in tears after the incredible final shot. So I was wondering, have either of you seen Memories of Murder? And if so, would you be willing to share your thoughts on it and where you'd place it on your scale? Uh, thank you for your time as always. I appreciate you both. Have a happy holidays. This is before Christmas. No, fair enough. Uh, as your podcast has been a huge source of entertainment for me this year, and I look forward to more great movies and episodes in 2020. Uh, thank you. Yeah, sorry we didn't get to this a little sooner, uh, but I've seen Memories of Murder. Have you seen Memories of Murder? I haven't. I've seen other Bong Joon-ho films. Sure. Yeah, he's, been, mm. he's made a lot of live movies mm. by now. Um, Memories of Murder is great. <laughs> I think we talked about it a little bit on our most recent Oscars episode. Um but uh, I think it was his second feature film, and it is the based on a true story of the first serial killer on record mm-hmm. in South Korea. And uh, this really creepy thing where someone would kill people who wore a certain thing, like in a mm-hmm. rainstorm, if this song played on the radio. It's super like difficult to track down. And mm-hmm. um, because it was a different kind of crime, uh, the typical police procedures weren't really in place to solve this one Mm. and in the movie memories of murder and i don't know exactly how accurate it is we see detectives who are used to just beating the confessions out of people Mm. and all of a sudden they've got an actual crime to solve and they're totally ill-equipped for it and their level of corruption might regardless of their intention Uh uh might end up making the case unsolvable and it's great and it's this it's just it's this really ethically morally complicated police procedural it's scary um i love it i think it's definitely on our c minus to c plus scale it's definitely a c plus i highly recommend you check it out mm-hmm. um i haven't seen all of bong joon ho's movie i've never seen mother i hear that one's really great Mo- mother is my favorite of his yeah. um I, I like Parasite a lot. Uh, it, it, it wasn't one of my favorites of the year, but I, I do like Parasite. I'm not going to you know, disparage it for any reason. Yeah. Um, I, I I could complain. I, I don't. I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of Snowpiercer, and I re- actually really actively dislike Okja. But uh, I, I also actually dislike Okja. I, I admit Snowpiercer is heavy handed, but I don't mm. think that makes it bad. Mm. It's it's. I, I think it would have operated just fine if it were like a 15 minute short film like just introduce that concept go through get out you don't need like this entire ponderous thing where we're introducing the same concept over and over again it's episodic every yeah. train every car on the train is its own story and yeah, yeah. we have to pause for it and I get it yeah yeah 
Uh, but yeah, Memories of Murder. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, it's really, 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 really great. And people will, will hopefully start discovering it more now that Bong Joon-ho is... Maybe not a household name, but a name He's many a more award-winning director. I now, think so, yeah. I think many more households are aware of him now than ever used to be, um, and are now maybe going to be interested in finding mm-hmm. his work. A lot of his work is currently available on streaming services. I think there's a couple on Tubi. Um, there's some on Amazon, mm-hmm. and I'm not I sure. I think the host is on Criterion. I want to say yeah, but mm-hmm. a lot of his work is readily available. Yeah, he's been, he's been a beloved filmmaker amongst, uh, for lack of a better word, cinephiles mm-hmm. uh, for many, many years. So his work is very readily available here if you just know to look for it. Yeah. 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 Uh, here's a letter from uh, Anthony from Toronto. Oh, hi, Anthony. Hello, Anthony from Toronto. Uh, greetings, Bist. Greeting, Bist. Greetings, Bist. Sabist. <laughs> Buy our Sabist t-shirts, by the way. <laughs> it's a completely obscure reference, which no one will ever get anymore, but yeah. it, it looks like a band logo. It says S-B-I-S-T, Sabist. Yeah. I designed it myself. You can Thank buy you. it on T T Public. Not T Fury. T Public. T Public. Uh, greetings, Beast, and Breitbart's Most Wanted. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, Whitney, yeah. Whitney, Whitney became a target of Breitbart for a while for saying uh, that, for saying, a that Rambo. A ra- for saying that a racist film was racist. Yeah, yeah. I got in trouble for that. Uh, I'm a recent convert to the critically acclaimed network and just wanted to drop a line to your esteemed selves to let you know that I'm much enjoying your shows. I started with the gateway drug that is canceled too soon and to follow you <laughs> fine gentlemen to, uh, to the lamented late B-Movies podcast than to the current critically acclaimed show. I'll be getting the two shot any day now. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we had to put the kibosh on the two shot. It was just... Uh, it was one too many things and we wanted to try to stretch, yeah. our, uh, stretch our legs a bit. So we got a new podcast coming soon here at the network. Mm. Sorry about that. But there's a lot of back, uh, backlog of the two shot if you're relatively new to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love your witty banter in each episode and can fully understand why your legion of listeners has grown a number of the years. Oh, thank, thank you. you. That's really uh, nice to hear. The close friendship you have with one another is very obvious from your good-natured ribbing and debates. Oh, ribbing all the time. <laughs> uh, and I have to believe that warmth and camaraderie is what many people are seeking in these uncertain times. Sometimes, some people are okay with the darker, angrier corners of the internet, but I'd like to think that there's a larger audience out there wanting the thoughtful, intelligent insight that folks like your admirable selves provide on a regular basis. Well, gosh, we hope so. That's that's the idea you to say that's, yeah. that's um, what we are aiming for. I mean, occasionally we rant, but yeah, we we, have we, only, about. we only rant out of genuine hate. Like, <laughs> like, like, like I mean, I meant like when yeah, we, that's when what we, we're getting at. When we, when we rant about cats, it's because we hate cats, I not because cats. we're full of hate. I don't hate cats. I'm just amazed at cats. I, I could watch cats like a dozen more times, yeah, provided I'm with a group of people and there's a lot of gin involved. Yeah, um, um, but no, we, we you know we don't want to like not. We, we, as a critic, you have to be able to say negative things, and sometimes mm-hmm. that means being passionate about it. But mm-hmm. the overall vibe, I think, of a critic of any stripe should be: I love the art. Yeah, we, we, and, we love. And the if we're angry form. at something, it's because we love it, and we think it's letting us down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I actually had a question, but wound up buttering you up uh, longer than I intended. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so a question specifically about Halloween. In the 1978 original, Mm -hmm. which I first saw when I was around 12 years old, there was an exchange about Michael Myers that I found amusing. Dr. Wynn, now for God's sake, he can't even drive a car. Dr. Loomis, he was doing very well last night. Maybe someone around here gave him lessons. That's that's my Donald Pleasance impersonation. That's not bad. Uh, That brought a small smile to my face during my first viewing. As an adult, I now realize 
that it was the filmmakers acknowledging something that makes no sense. Yep. How can someone who's been incarcerated since the age of six suddenly know how to drive a car when he, almost 20 years later? Mm-hmm. Loomis' answer is basically Deborah Hill and John Carpenter saying, yes, we know. Just roll with it. At this point, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Clark Wolf for shining a spotlight on the career of Deborah Hill, whose contributions to Carpenter's work and genre film in general were absolutely invaluable. Clark uh, Wolf look is up, one of my... Look up Clark Wolf. She's wonderful. She's one of my yeah. heroes in the industry. Mm-hmm. I have nothing but admiration for mm-hmm. her. Yeah. And Deborah Hill, of course, but like, and of course, Deborah Hill. But we but know yeah. Clark personally, and she does such amazing work, and she's an inspiration to so many people. Yeah, and it's yeah. an honor to just know her. Look, look her up, look up her work, follow yeah. her on the social medias. She, she's worth worth your time. Uh, I found this handling of Michael's inexplicable driving skills to be very deft, as it addresses the issue without taking the audience out of the film, while at the same time not actually giving an answer. Even though I've watched the, uh, thousands of films, I'm hard pressed to think of other instances where filmmakers do this sort of thing effectively. I was wondering if any example from TV or movies comes to mind for you fine gentlemen. Uh, secondly, I learned within the past couple of years that Halloween was intended to be an anthology series rather yep. than the Michael Myers saga that it became. I've yet to see Halloween 3 season of The Witch. Oh, are you in for a treat? <laughs> But I understand that that movie, despite being very different from its predecessors and goes completely bonkers, makes it obvious that it's linked, if only peripherally, to Meyer, uh, the Meyer-centric films that came before it. I'd like to know what other types of stories you'd like to see set in the Halloween-verse. Okay, well, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, and, uh, and, and there's more. Oh, there's more, uh, okay. And, and my final question goes okay. back to Michael's driving. In Halloween 7, Halloween H- H2O, mm-hmm. I hate that title, um, Halloween water. Yeah, shut up. It's the, the best kind of water. <laughs> it's delicious. It tastes like pumpkin. <laughs> he apparently drove from Haddonfield, Illinois, to a town in Northern California, which I believe is a trek of about 2,000 miles. I don't remember the movie as well as uh, as I last saw it during its original theatrical run, so I don't recall any character ever mentioning Michael's stolen car having a GPS or a road map. I have to admit, though, that the thought of Michael stopping to ask for directions every 100 miles or so <laughs> and scrounging for change for tolls is rather amusing. <laughs> I imagine he just walked. He, he, he has evil compass. He, he took a of... bus. You've all, we've all sat next to somebody on the bus mm. in like you know a weird outfit, maybe mm. a mask, and you're just sort of just like, honey, stay did, away from did, that did, side did of the it, bus. Did and... he have the mask on the whole time, or did he take the mask off? It, either way. Is he like the Michael Myers in the Rob Zombie one where he's just like a hobo with a bedroll and you Basically, see his beard sticking out underneath the, the mask? I, mean, I guess he shaves. I guess. He's got it, right? He's got to have some sort of vanity. I think he. I think he's, like, kind of supernatural. We know he's kind yeah. of supernatural. He's okay. Like, uh, John Carpenter. Uh, yeah, he says, I wanted to get your take rather than... Uh, Take on this rather daunting road trip. Would you like to see a, a movie or perhaps even a TV series following Michael on his cross-country adventures? Well, yes, that would. If be so, fun. what type of what type of antics do you anticipate for such a film? R- warm regards, Anthony. Okay, uh, there's a lot of questions uh, in there. Let's start with uh, the first one, which mm-hmm. is um, when you know there's a plot hole in your movie and you uh-huh. just address it and get out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is the sort of thing where, particularly in genre movies, where you mm-hmm. have to incorporate some kind of rule. Uh, it's, like, like, it's like the shot in um, in all of the modern films where they have to have somebody looking at their phone showing that there's no signal or their battery is dead. Yeah, you have to do the work. Yeah, you yeah. have to explain why, otherwise like, you'll they're, ask they're, the question, why aren't they calling anybody? They're, they're do, yeah, they're doing this sort of lost in the woods scenario, which they've been doing since time immemorial in cinema. And yet, with the inception of cell phones, writers didn't think of like a way around the phone so there's always the only way they can think around the phone is just to remove the phone from the equation yeah battery's dead yeah. no reception gets broken or lost I, I one of the things I appreciated about Blair Witch the third Blair Witch movie mm-hmm. uh, was 
you know, the first one was made in the late 90s. They didn't have things like GPS or cell phones. They just had mm. the camera and, they, and a map. Yeah. And they were lost in the woods, and the woods seemed to be, a, like, rearranging itself around them, so they were constantly lost. First one is so effective. It's, it's, yeah. it's really good. And, of course, when people started watching this a generation later, they're saying, oh, well, just go in there and you have a GPS and you can find your way out. And I loved that in Blair Witch. They went in. They had cameras everywhere. They had a G- They had several GPSs. They had drones filming. They planned around. this all out. They planned it all out and it was still not enough yeah it's like it doesn't matter if you're well prepared the evil is bigger than that <laughs> i like the i like the third one better than most it's like people. how come I, the sun the isn't coming up because you're in a haunted woods you yeah. dingus <laughs> yeah, i think the third one i think the third one mm. is actually pretty good but mm. um when it comes down to uh here's a rule we invented the rule or invented this plot point and it doesn't really make sense but just go with it and mm. the one i always think of is gremlins Okay. Specifically, don't feed them after midnight. Mm. That's the big rule. If you feed a gremlin after midnight, they turn into... If you feed a mogwai after midnight, it turns uh, into a gremlin. Right. And the gremlins are the ones that'll kill you. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, that might be mischievous, that might be mean, but they can't kill you until they're gremlins. Okay. And that inspired so many obnoxious conversations. Yeah. And as well it should, because when is it not after midnight? Yeah. They're really nonspecific about this. It's a weird rule. Well, no one ever asks a follow-up question. Uh-huh. It's confusing. And so in Gremlins 2, there is a long conversation between, like, <laughs> scientists. Art, 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 no, it's, it's is the, it the um, scientists. It's not the scientists. It's the people working in, like, the communications network. Oh, that's right. Network. It's like, the, it, it's yeah, like the, the, the wire TV operators. Like, yeah. It, yeah. So, but one, like, one of them is comedian Archie Hahn. And, yeah, it's, that's right. So they're all talking about, like, well, when is it? What if you cross the international dateline? What if there's food stuck in the Mogwai's teeth mm. and the food doesn't dislodge until 1205? Mm. Does that count? And the quest and the reason why they put that in there is because it's stupid. It's, it's, and they never answer any of those questions the, the, because it's it, stupid. It, it, and they it's know like, it. Well, and also you you don't get them wet, so they never bathe. How do yeah. they get clean? Do you just have stinky dirty Mogwai's? Yeah. I mean, we're just letting it go. Yeah. Just and let the, it go. Uh, regards to Michael Myers driving, uh, I'm going to say this right now. If it's an automatic car, it's not that complicated. He can probably figure it out pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he actually does drive quite a bit And I think, Halloween 5. Okay. Uh, in addition to Halloween 1, mm-hmm. uh, Halloween 5, he's also driving around. He wears a different mask for a while in Halloween 5. It's like a creepy old guy mask. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he can drive okay, I Yes. Well, I, I I got to talk to John Carpenter once. It was just mm. a phone interview. Sure. It, was, it was one of those things where it was like two interviewers at a time, so we kind of had to alternate questions, which was probably obnoxious for him. But uh, oh, I know. Yeah, it's got to it's got to get he, old fast. He, he kept on, and this was on an anniversary of Halloween, so we're talking about Halloween, and you know, I got to ask him, you know, why did you choose Haddonfield, Illinois? Is there something about that that part of the country that you feel is conducive to creating serial killers? It's like, no, I was just looking for Midtown America, and we shot off of Melrose in L.A. anyway. Um, John Carpenter gives no fucks. <laughs> he, just, he, has, he, he, he never had any to give, and uh, it, it, which is really frustrating because he's actually a brilliant filmmaker, but he just doesn't really... He's such a natural at the craft that he almost doesn't care about the craft. Like, I'm not not saying that he's a careless filmmaker. He's actually a very careful filmmaker. Right. But, yeah, he, he doesn't have any pretenses to doing anything larger. He's just trying to shoot a good film. But he had described Michael Myers as being semi-supernatural. You know, it, it, he was, you know, born of humanity, but he is, you know, the, the psychiatrist recognized that now he's kind of constructed of evil. There's something kind of demonic about him, that he's part, partly ghost. He's the boogeyman now. They say that over and over again. And 
he can drive because, of course, the boogeyman can drive. I'm not trying to think of like the mechanics <laughs> of him looking through a manual or turning ignitions or you know getting in car wrecks or anything like that. I, I can't imagine Michael Myers getting in a car chase. I can't imagine him using a gun. Uh, he's he's a boogeyman. He sneaks around, and one of the ways he can sneak around is he can drive around. Mm-hmm. And you're not supposed to think about that because you're supposed to be thinking of the boogeyman, like you're a little kid. And those things aren't concerns of yours when you're a little kid. Yeah. Um, so how how is he in, in Northern California? Here's my thought. He simply appeared. Yeah. Like he appeared phantom. nearby. He, he was like a shadow and he just, yeah, sort of wisped his way. I just realized we got through an entire conversation about the uh, mm. writing trope of sort of we acknowledge there's a problem in the text, but we're mm. just going to mention it real, real fast so you know that we're not stupid uh-huh. and we're just going to go with it. There's a word for that. It's called uh, hanging a lampshade. Oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah. When, you, when you call it, it's called lampshading, mm. where it's just like, we're just going to call attention to that. So we, rather we than, know that you're looking, too. Yeah, yeah. We, we know. We're just going to call attention to that. And I mm. actually thought of another really great example. Mm. Snakes on a plane. <laughs> that guy saw us. I'm going to put snakes on his plane. Okay. That's the plot. Yeah. I the just pl- described the whole plot yeah, of the movie. There's a guy, he's going to, he, Samuel L. Jackson is delivering a witness, and he's going from like Hawaii to California. Mm. And the whole plot of the movie is the bad guy, in an attempt to kill the dude, unleashes, like, hundreds of poisonous snakes onto a plane and, like, crossing the Pacific Ocean. Mm. So there's no, nowhere to go, nothing to do. It's great. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It knows it's stupid. It has a good time. It's a fun movie. But the premise is fundamentally idiotic. And they have to address that and mm. then move on. And there's a part at the beginning, and it's so fucking weird. There's a part at the beginning where you you only see the bad guy like twice in the whole movie. And you don't think, you think he gets his comeuppance at the end. Mm. He's not on the plane. So I just forget about him. But you're introduced to him, and he's, like, kickboxing and, like, fighting a bunch of dudes. And then, like, his, like, consigliere is just like, uh, yeah, we put those hundreds of poisonous snakes on a plane. Is that really the best way to handle this? And the guy says, do you think I would do this if I hadn't exhausted every other option? <laughs> really? There were, what are the other options you exhausted? We, just, we thought about a moose on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and that just didn't work. That didn't make any sense. We put we put we a put, cougar in an Oldsmobile. We put wildebeests in a hot air balloon, and that didn't work either. Snakes on a plane was the only one we had left. It's idiotic, but they just they address it so fast. It's fine. <laughs> just move on. Snakes on a plane was a film that was. Uh, I think they were going to call it, like, Nightmare Flight or something really nondescript. It was going to be called, like, and, Flight 180 or yeah, something. Yeah, like, and, they just and, wanted to call it something really generic. But they realized that people were sort of flocking to how corny it sounded, and they actually added more, like, B-movie. Like, they, they, were, they added violence and nudity after the fact. Like, there, there's this really uh, titillating sex scene where the two young leads just sort of take their clothes off and have sex in, in a bathroom. Principal photography had wrapped before they shot that scene. Because they realized people were going to this because they wanted just an R-rated exploitation movie. So they added more exploitation, <laughs> including the line of, of uh, Samuel L. Jackson using his favorite 14-letter word uh, twice. Um, they added that after the fact. Snakes on a plate is so dumb. Um, yeah, fun, though. Fun, though. In Once Upon a Deadpool, the re-release of Deadpool 2, where uh, they tried to make it a PG-13 rated film by cutting out like a lot of the, the cussing and some of the violence. So weird. It, I, th- I thought it was an interesting experiment. Yeah. Uh, kind of odd that they released it into to theaters. The bookending material they added with Ryan Reynolds and Fred Savage is gold. Because okay. I'd love to see just a buddy cop film with those two because they have <laughs> such great chemistry. They're hilarious together. Nice. Uh, 
but yeah, like cutting out all of the cussing and all of the violence actually makes it feel like an edit, like a TV edit. But in Deadpool 2, a lot of critics took issue with the fact that uh, the uh, Morena Baccarin character, uh, Vanessa, mm. was so important to the, the first movie was just sort of killed off right at the start of the second movie to give the character motivation. There's a word for that. It's called fridging. And mm-hmm. uh, for, in reference to, I think it's a, a, is it a Green Lantern comic? It's a Green Lantern Green comic. Lantern comic. Yeah, where, where uh, he had a girlfriend character. A female character is, is murdered merely to give a male character motivation. It's, I think it's really Gail sexist. Simone actually uh, coined that term. He's a really great writer. She actually, yeah. uh, uh, I don't know if she created them, but she actually wrote the defining run on Birds of Prey. Oh, nice. Okay. She's a really brilliant writer. Yeah, and she yeah she came up with this ter- this critical term, fridging, and yeah, a lot of people weren't comfortable with the fact that this character was fridged for, uh, through throughout the length of the film. And uh, in Once Upon a Deadpool, they called attention to it. They said, "You, I can't believe." Fred Savage actually says, "I can't believe you fridged her." Do you know what fridging is? And he actually explains it in the movie. Mm-hmm. Fridging is this thing where they they kill a female character. It's a really sexist trope because mm-hmm. it's just makes female life completely useless and only only serves to give. It was male one of my motivation. big critiques yeah. of Deadpool too. I'm glad they at least yeah. acknowledge and, it. And they acknowledge it. And and then Deadpool says, "Yeah, I guess we did do that." And then Fred Savage actually takes them to task. Well, you can't just acknowledge that you did something wrong as an excuse for doing something wrong. You actually have to like not do that next time. It's like let's just move on past this point because you know the movie had already mm-hmm. been made. They can't just re-edit. They can't remake the movie. They're just re-editing yeah. it. Um, so I, I like that they hung a lampshade on it, and then they had to hang a lampshade on the fact that they were hanging a lampshade. That's very fun. And. No, neither of those things got around the fact that what they did was actually ultimately really irresponsible. Yeah. Mm. Um, regarding the other part of the letter, which is mm. uh, Halloween was originally going to be an anthology movie, or at least that was the original idea. Well, um, John it was originally just going to be its own thing. Well, yeah, because this is not a movie that was designed... Like, slashers didn't have tons of sequels. Mm. In fact, slashers were barely a thing. No, some Halloween some producer out. said, I have this idea about a, a killer who kills a bunch of babysitters. Uh, John Carpenter, it's can you do that? It's going to be called Babysitter yeah. Murders. That yeah, was yeah. the original title. And then they decided to set it around Halloween. John Carpenter made an unthinkably good movie. Like, <laughs> such like, a bizarrely good movie that even people who weren't... Hmm. Who didn't like approve of horror as a genre had to stand up and say mm-hmm. Halloween is a work of brilliance, and then it was so successful. And because the ending of Halloween leaves us on sort of an ambiguous note, mm-hmm. and that was not a sequel tease; that was just supposed to freak you out. Yeah, the idea that Michael the kill, Myers the killer might still be alive. Yeah, the killer might still yeah. be alive. Creepy thought, right? Okay, well that'll leave you something to think about when you go home and try to sleep tonight. Uh, but it left it open for a sequel, and so when the time came to do a sequel, is my understanding. That John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and whoever else was collaborating with them, the original idea was, well, instead of going back to Michael Myers, because that story has been told and it kind of neatly works out, let's just do another horror story set at Halloween. Mm. Perfect time for it. Apparently, there was dissension in the ranks, and they were told they had to do another Michael Myers story. Mm. So they decided to close out the Michael Myers story, just officially end it. So, okay, okay, so he got away in the night, here's what happened the rest of that Halloween night, mm-hmm. and at the end, Michael Myers is literally blown up. <laughs> His eyeballs are shot out, and yeah. then he's blown up. Yeah, we're, there's and, no getting back and, and from do- that. And Dr. Loomis was blown up, too. He was yeah. in the explosion. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it's just they, done. They also introduced this conceit that the reason Michael was coming after... Uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis character, Laurie in particular, uh, was because it turns out that they were related. They were brother and sister. Always hated that plot point. And uh, you'll notice that when David Gordon Green came back and did another Halloween, t- the third Halloween 2, uh-huh. uh, they decided to 
erase the original Halloween well, too. It's actually one of the things that I actually liked about Rob Zombie's Halloween movies was that mm. not that he kept the brother sister thing, but that he kept it from the beginning. Yeah. So that actually this because you can tell in the original Halloween she's not his sister. Mm-hmm. That that was added after the fact. Yeah. Rob Zombie was like, okay, she's a sister. What does that mean? Why is he so obsessed with her? What we need to if that if that matters to him, clearly family matters to him. So mm-hmm. I'm going to do a story about his family. I think the first Rob Zombie Halloween is really heavy handed and the structure is off, and I don't think it works. But mm-hmm. I admire the idea behind trying to retcon that so it works, and I think Halloween Two actually does a pretty good job mm-hmm. of it. His Halloween Two, rather. Mm-hmm. Halloween Three comes along, and by that point, they pretty much made their point. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> we got, if you want another Halloween, we got to do something else. Mm-hmm. So they decided to call it. But instead of just calling it Halloween colon season of the witch mm-hmm. or season of the witch colon a Halloween story or something like that, they call it Halloween three, which implies <laughs> that it follows. It's a ch- Halloween another one and chapter. Two. You have another Roman numeral. So a lot of people had this certain expectation, unreasonable mm-hmm. or otherwise, that it would in some way connect, and it doesn't. In mm. fact, there's actually a scene in the movie where the movie Halloween is on television. It is a movie within <laughs> this movie franchise. So it's not actually connected to Michael Myers, and the only time they even play the original John Carpenter Halloween theme is while someone is watching TV. Yeah, man. Um, um, Halloween, although John Carpenter was a producer on Halloween 3, because mm-hmm. they're going with his idea, Halloween 3 is completely bonkers. Yeah, it's about it's haunted like, Halloween masks it's, that it's, kill it's, your kids. It's, it's about an ancient druid who has a piece of Stonehenge. He's stolen a piece of Stonehenge, and he's chipping off little pieces and putting them in these little discs inside of masks uh-huh. that also have like computer, uh, like TV receivers oh, inside of them as well. So they're going to get and triggered if, by like watching little, TV. If a little and, kid oh. is wearing a mask at a certain time, and they send over a certain signal that the the magic it'll activate something in the Stonehenge chip that will uh-huh. turn the kids' heads into bugs. Now I know how stupid that sounds. That's the premise of the movie because it's really stupid. Mm-hmm. However, there's a couple of scenes in the movie uh-huh. where, as stupid as the premise is, it's fucking terrifying. There's this one bit where they test out the mechanism and like this like secure mm. chamber with a kid watching TV was wearing they, this pumpkin they made, mask. They, for some reason they've made like this fake living room. It's and, you know. really creepy and like you're <laughs> like oh god and like the ending actually is really scary as well. It's a, it's a movie that waffles between really stupid mm. and surprisingly good and again if it had never been called Halloween 3 if it had just been released as mm. Season of the Witch it would probably have a somewhat positive mm. cult reputation. But for many years, it was seen as the bullshit Halloween movie. Yeah, they should have called it the Bughead Signal. <laughs> okay, that's actually a really good. I'd idea. see a movie called the Bughead. That sig- sounds like a signal. band you would have started. In the, bu- the Bughead Signal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, was- but yeah, Halloween three. It's fun. I think it's now at the point where it's almost overrated because people said how underrated it was yeah. for so long. But it's it's a messy, weird film. But it's yeah, I enjoy yeah. it. I also I'm going to say this right now, just while we're on the subject of Halloween. Mm. Halloween four is really underrated. Halloween 4 is, is yeah. It's a very good slasher. I'm if not going to call it, can, it's not nearly as good as John Carpenter's, but that's a high bar. It's just a good slasher. You can watch Halloween 1 and 4 and maybe 7 and skip all the others. Well, you can't because, oh, okay. you can't in 4 because in 4, 4 goes with the idea that after Halloween 2, Laurie Strode died. Oh, okay. So you can't... That seven is out of continuity with everything except Halloween 1. Yeah, I guess you're right. You can either watch... Here's what I recommend. You either mm. watch Halloween 1, 2, and 4, mm. or Halloween 1, 2, and 7. One, Yeah, 1, 2, and 7. 1, 2, and 7 is a good triple feature. 1, 2, and 4 is the alternate reality version triple feature. Mm. There is no reason to go on to 5 and 6. There's like a couple of good set or, pieces in 5 <laughs> that I, I think or, are fun. Or but, 8. Oh, definitely 8. Skip 8. eight. 
Watch them all. They're all stupid and fun. You'll have a good time. Like, o- overall, the Halloween series is terrible. It's a like, real mixed the, bag. The, the first one is, is like, a legitimate horror classic, yeah. and none of the sequels are, like, really all that good. I, I actually... I will stand up for Halloween H2O because I think Jamie Lee Curtis's character work is that good. Mm. Also, and I love the way that they repurpose mm. the, the, the Halloween theme from something scary to something heroic for her. Mm. I think I think that movie's actually better than people give it credit for, and I think David also, Gordon Green's like, movie is functionally a remake of H2O. Uh, more or less. Um, yeah. I think I like H2O better. Also, it's like 75 minutes. You just very, get, get in and out. Good. It's fine. I like David Gordon Green's version yeah. a lot, too, but I, I honestly I think that H2O did it slightly better, but nowhere near as stylishly. Yeah. Like, uh, if, if you can look up the Red Letter Media review, they have a really great sort of recap as to how the continuity just doesn't work. Like, no, ha- Halloween is the sequel to Halloween, but not the sequel to Halloween. Yeah. Basically, it's Halloween 2, not to be confused with Halloween 2, or Halloween 2. <laughs> Very um, frustrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Halloween is frustrating. Right, we have time for one or two more. All right. Here's a letter from uh, Larson. Hello, Larson. Hi. Um, hi, friends. In late 2018, I wrote, ask you uh, the exact same question about the Ingmar Bergman box set. Mm. Oh, yeah, I remember uh, this. Uh, Whitney, you were right about how that thick, sexy box set <laughs> is laid out for the most part. And it's thick with two Cs. I'm so glad. Yeah. Uh, the box set is laid out like a film festival with big showcase films given a disc full of, uh, themselves full of bonus features and a several page long essay in the book then a few flicks jammed together on discs with no bonus features usually one essay for the two movies uh, while I intended to watch all 39 movies in 2019 I made it through six <laughs> <laughs> Before I decided to slow the pace. That's fine. <laughs> That's ma- very reasonable. Don't, don't marathon Bergman. Bergman's hard to watch hard. in general. Like I don't mean like difficult. Yeah. It's just it's you got to like really watch. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I'm not an expert in Bergman is because you really have to, you have to dedicate watch, your time. Well, and you also and have dedicate, to di- give yourself six hours afterwards yeah, to digest it. You have to, to really like, digest something like Bergman. Yeah. You, you, it's not it's not like a, a Marvel marathon where it's all just story and incident. You can't play you know? Bejeweled while watching Wild Strawberries. You just can't. <laughs> I suppose not. Um, uh, the first film, Smiles of a Summer Night, was delightfully funny and a great opening to the collection. Smile, Smiles of a Summer Night was an interesting uh, f- phenomenon for me because I'd already seen numerous Bergman films and they're all very heady and very heavy and very, you know, deal with despair and sadness a lot. And uh, everyone said Smiles of a Summer Night is his comedy film. It's the funny one. It's got smiles on so, the title. Yeah, Smiles of a Summer Night. And I'm watching this and it's about this, the, the opening scenes of Smiles of a Summer Night, a, a couple, this rich couple is getting ready to go out to the opera and they have stone faces and they're not talking to each other. They're just putting, like, automatically putting on their fancy wares. And they go out to the opera and they sit in the box together and they're still not looking at each other and they're not communicating and the opera is going and they're clearly not really paying attention to the opera. And then the woman sitting in the box just bursts into tears. I was like, this, this is Bergman's comedy. <laughs> this couple is not speaking one of them just bursts into tears out of nowhere yeah good job thigh slappers yeah um i agree that crisis was a tough watch actually i haven't seen crisis Mm. so was a ship to india but i was absolutely floor getting to the second showcase film wild strawberries which moved me to tears wild strawberries is quite good Mm -hmm. um largely reminding me of my elderly father uh, telling me stories of his long life i'm hoping to go through another 10 or so movies from the box in the upcoming year the collection is laid out incredibly lovingly and is definitely a masterclass for all um, it also costs $300. So <laughs> even if you're waiting for the Criterion half-off sale, that's a pretty penny. But, that's, a, um, that's a long one. That's one I haven't been able to belly up to yet. I kind of hope to at some point. Uh, question for you. Uh, have you come across a filmmaker or a movie which connects to you on a primal cultural level? 
My family emigrated from Sweden four generations ago, and while I've never been to the country nor speak the language, Bergman's work, as well as Midsommar, connects with me. The language feels like something I should understand, and the people look like they should be kin. Thanks, Larson. Uh, P.S. The A24 podcast has a question between Ari Aster and Robert Eggers over oh, the summer, yeah. who for about 20 minutes just talk about how much they love Bergman. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised about that. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, I'm glad people are actually like bothering to belly up to Bergman. I think yeah. Bergman... If they ever introduce a, a Nobel Prize for cinema, I think Bergman is the obvious choice for the first one. Uh, posthumous, uh, yeah, no, posthumous Nobel. Yeah, um, that's a good example. That's, that's, yeah. I can't think of a. Yeah, I mean that's just, I, that I, just that makes sense. I think there ought to be a Nobel for it for should. cinema, but I think cinema is such a, a pop medium that uh, it's. I think it would be difficult for like the Nobel nominating committee to really kind of find the biggest, most important films that you know, are actually worthy of a Nobel Prize. I don't think it'd be that hard. Perhaps not. Uh, Unless some film critics. I volunteer. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And, and I promise not to just do, oh yeah, you should you should totally do Big Trouble in Little China. Nobel Prize. Yeah, no, 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 of course not. You, know, you do whatever, anyway. But, mm. um, uh, but movies yeah. that speak to our culture. Mm. And, uh, of course, this is also highly personal because as mm. much as a culture is a group of people, everyone's individual experience within their culture is a little different than mm. others. So... That's well, an interesting question. My uh, my cultural heritage. I mean, I'm I'm a white male. My cultural heritage is actually, you know, I was a few generations in America already, mostly in California. Uh, my cultural heritage is uh, that of uh, Germans and Brits. So essentially, the oppressors. Uh, mm-hmm, yeah. So I, I watch uh, you know films about sort of German culture, and I have like really sort of contemplative films like Werner Herzog. Uh, monster films like F.W. Murnau and some of his just sort of really odd morality plays. And of course, World War II pictures and where the Germans are because the films I've seen are made by Americans and Brits, Germans are depicted as the enemy because Nazi party, uh, <laughs> even in Germany. So kind of coming to terms with my heritage as the children of oppressors is something that I constant, constantly have to uh, contend with when yeah. I'm watching cinema about uh, Germany and, and the German people. Um, this is not to say that, you know, all German films are about sort of w- wickedness and about oppression. There's mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of German films, and I've seen all kinds of German films. Yeah. But, yeah, when I was young and sort of paying attention for the first time, like when I'm, high sc- I'm in high school and the first time I'm paying attention to the way Germans are depicted in American cinema, it's usually through the lens just of World War II. Right. And Germans are just the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, and and that was something I had to sort of start thinking about when I was in high school. It's like, I, this is where I came from. How do I feel about that? How do I feel about where I am in life? How do I feel about my class and my position? Seeing as this is my, this was my legacy. Yeah. And, it's uh, gotta be tricky. And yeah, and, and it was tricky. And I just started going through a lot of like more, like moral exploration I think through, a lo- through that. I think a lot about what my mom must have gone through. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was raised in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, she was uh, not part of a wealthy family. In fact, a lot of the stories that she's told about. Um, her relatives are things that would be considered almost stereotypes of people who grew up in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, she really didn't like that culture that she grew up in. Mm-hmm. It didn't treat her very well. Her family didn't treat her very well. Um, and she didn't feel at home in that culture. And so uh, when she married my father, who was Italian-American, we just sort of doubled down on that. Okay. And so I grew up in an Italian-American household. But even then, I didn't grow up in an Italian-American community. 
Mm. I grew up in Pasadena in an Armenian neighborhood. Um, so I wasn't really surrounded by Italian Americans. Mm. When I visited my grandparents over on the East Coast, I was more immersed in Italian American culture. And the movie for me that made me go, that's what that's like. <laughs> that's what it was like hanging out with my grandfather mm. in his barber shop and talking to all of his Italian American friends who actually still had the thick accents. And uh, for me, it's the movie Big Night. And I've talked about this movie a lot. I love this movie to pieces. Yeah. Uh, Big Night stars uh, Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub as uh, two, I think they're just Italians. I think they just immigrated. Mm. But. Um, Two Italians, I think they're living in New York City, and they have a wonderful Italian restaurant, but it's such genuine Italian cuisine, it's not Americanized in any way, that they're actually not doing very well, even though mm. they're brilliant chefs, or at least Tony Shalhoub is. I think mm. Tucci mostly just runs the restaurant. Um, and so they're, so they're both, uh, Tony Shalhoub is like the master cook, but yeah. Tucci's T- also Tucci could do it, Tucci could do it, just Tony Shalhoub's the one who actually does. But um, And so they have an opportunity to cook a smorgasbord of a meal mm. for the great Louis Prima. And the idea is that this celebrity will come in, the celebrity will talk up your restaurant, and a restaurant will do well. So it's all about the big night, the big dinner. And so they invite a very small select group of friends, and it's just all about all of them communicating and bonding over food. There's a mm. scene where Ian Holm, who runs the Italian restaurant that it's, they, they compete with, it's their closest competitor, mm. it's way more Americanized and more popular, He's there, and he's eating their food, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the conversation, he hits the table. Bang! God damn it! He's, everyone stops, because, like, Dad's yelling at us. <laughs> and he's just like, this food is so good. <laughs> <laughs> and food is very important, very important to my family. Food is very important to, you know, people mm. I know in my culture. Again, I didn't grow up immersed in my culture. Um, and so Big Night, I think, understood that about how people connect mm-hmm. through shared experience and sometimes through things like shared cuisine. And mm-hmm. um, so yeah, Big Night was a big one for me. All right. Yeah, I don't have a lot of uh, connection to my culture on my mom's side, uh, but on my dad's side, Big Night's the one that seems closest. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was talking about World War II films. The, the one that really kind of made me able to sort of stomach World War II films and my, you know, my legacy is the children of Germans, uh, Christ, white Christian Germans, sure. uh, was, was the producers. Ah! Um, Mel Brooks made light of it. Yeah. Uh, in a really tasteless way. That was the point. Yeah, yeah the movie's uh, about but, how know, that's tasteless to do that. Yeah. Who, who would ever possibly make a musical called Springtime for Hitler? Uh, but yeah, that there was able that there's some laughter to be had there. That this is so horrendous that in some cases you just got to say, "Golly, this is so horrible. We can't do anything but sort of mock it." And, and sometimes the jokes in that are mm. so like they they're so random, but mm. it's okay because of where the mockery is pointed. Like mm. they're they're auditioning for Hitler, mm. and who's the guy who ends up playing Hitler? It's um, oh, what's his name? Oh, uh, really? um, uh, for all, he was also in uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yeah, he's super fucking Not, not funny. Kenneth Mars, he was the screenwriter. Yeah, um, yeah, hold on, this is going to drive me The guy who played world. LSD. Uh, but yeah, yeah. The, the, this like weird, freaky Dick Sean. Dude. Dick Sean. The great Dick Sean. <laughs> Dick he Sean plays Lorenzo St. Dubois, LSD. Uh-huh. Uh, and he is this weird, hippie, flower child, over-actor, ham, <laughs> and he gives this horrendously 
stupid audition. Psychedelic hippie song like, about I'm giving flowers and they're setting them on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody it, cares about my flowers. It was the rejected first draft of hair that was written <laughs> while they were completely drunk and they were just like, I like the idea, but let's switch everything else. And he's wearing like sheepskin spats. And yeah. It's just, it's looks it's just, he's ridiculous. the worst actor in the world. Spats, and after, le- like leggings. And after he his... gives this the most horrendous audition you've ever seen, uh, the most insulting audition you've ever seen, you hear in the background just yeah, like, that's our Hitler! <laughs> and it's hilarious because that's not who you cast as Hitler, but at the same time, fuck Hitler! Yeah, seriously. <laughs> that, that is Hitler. That's, that's all Hitler deserves. Here, here's one last letter. Um... This is from Linda. Hello, Linda. Um, just listening to you talk about needing to watch movies like Birth of a Nation with some context. Uh, this has come oh, up yeah. a couple times in our letters columns. Um, yeah, when Black Klansman came out, I announced I was done with Birth of a Nation. Mm. Uh, we don't need to have this, like, canonized anymore. It, it's in the history books as historically significant. Yeah. You don't need to watch it anymore. A lot of the things it's credited for being historically significant for, it's actually not yep. a pioneer on, if you, have, if you do a little bit more film research. And it is still, to this day, used for racist movies. Means. So uh, you you, yeah. you can teach it in film classes, but you really don't need to watch it or defend it in any yeah. kind of way. Um, anyway, uh, Linda says, I saw that film more than 40 years ago at a local film society who was putting on a season of silent films. We saw this one, Orphans of the Storm, Greed, ooh, I wonder which cut of Greed, and a handful of others. And aside from a few words on the program about its significance in film history, there was no warning about what what we were about to see. Oh my god, that must have been horrible. Yeah, this was 40 years ago. Um, Still. Most members of the film society were older in their 50s and 60s, while we were in our early 20s. Walking out afterwards, we all overheard... All the overheard talk was about film techniques. Uh... Uh, that kind of thing. And while my friend and I were looking at each other sideways, we got away from the place and said, that was really racist, right? You don't think that was racist? I'm pretty sure that was racist. <laughs> yeah, we, it's, we, fucking yeah racist. It's, it's It's so racist, you almost don't even recognize that it's just that brazen about it. It's like, it's like you're not wait, used to racism being that open that, anymore. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's just like when the heroic yeah. Ku Klux Klan... In their Sa- full save, saves robed the white regalia. Woman, yeah. And you're just like, I don't even... I'm so shocked at how racist this is. <laughs> I don't even know how to process yeah, that. Yeah. You'd never see that in any other context. Yeah, we, we almost didn't trust our own judgment because no one else seemed to have noticed. Yeah. So yeah, a discussion about, around these things, especially with films from a world that no longer exists, is pretty necessary. Keep up the good work, guys, Linda. Thank you. Yeah, yeah again, mm. fuck that movie. Uh-huh. Fuck Birth of a Nation. Fuck Hitler. They're all bad. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> why do I end on this one? Can uh, we end so, on a nice one? So not, 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 not that that wasn't a nice letter, but like, a let's, end, nice let's letter, end on a positive but, yeah, note. A positive note. Yeah, something, uh, something but, doesn't yeah, involve racism. Birth of a Nation. Yeah. Um, in the latest and allegedly last episode of the Two Shot, you guys quoted Dino Saucers yes. and stated it was a reference for exactly zero of your listeners. <laughs> Incorrect. It was for me. Yay! <laughs> I love your content. The two shot is one of my favorites, and it will be missed. Thank um, you. Dinosaurs was a short-lived animated series from the 1980s uh, that was about anthropomorphic dinosaur aliens who landed on Earth from out of town. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they're heroic. They're heroic anthropomorphic dinosaurs, and they're evil anthropomorphic dinosaurs. And Geng- Genghis Rex and the evil Tyrannos. Yes, and uh, yeah, 19- and that's it. It's from 1987. Yeah, and it, it was. Pretty good, actually, for the time. Like it wasn't no, a no. For, 
for the time. No. Compared to the other shows that were on, no. it was fine. I'm giving you none of this. No, no, I'm going to say this right <laughs> now. It is at least office. on par uh-huh. with Transformers or uh, GoBots. Like, it, was, yeah, it, was, no, it was average for uh, the time. It was no worse than anything yeah, else yeah. on TV. And it, it what was, was weird about it, though, is that it was... A pretty long-running show. It had, like, 50 episodes. 65. Which is, oh, really? Well, there you well, go. It was, it was, yeah, one season, but ran 65 episodes. Yeah, which is it's pretty... It's one of, one of the reasons why we haven't covered Dino Saucers on Cancel Too Soon. It's so just damn long. way too much content. Yeah, but... Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to it. Oh, I want to. Yeah. Um, but the, what's weird about it is that it's one of those animated shows that was clearly designed... To sell toys, it, it was it was produced by Galoop, yeah, the toy company. And, That's what they did. They they had a toy. They, uh, they came up with a show for it. The show promoted the toy. Reaganomics. That, that that was the 1980s. That's yeah. what we grew up with. And uh, they never made the toys. No, there were no. I mean, there were like a couple of like demo toys. It's my understanding you could get like a few internationally, but like basically that toy line never came out. Mm-hmm. And I would have bought those toys. I liked that show when I was a kid. I would have bought the hell out of those toys. Anthropomorphic dinosaurs, it's great. But the part that we always quote is a part from the opening of every episode. Uh, where uh, Anklo, well, the evil hench dino, <laughs> of, says, of Genghis Rex, of Genghis Rex says, "The dinosaurs are leaving, Bassasaur." <laughs> and Genghis Rex says, "Well, follow them." And and Anklo like does falls a, a big wild take, oh, falls on his head. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's the dumbest shit. Um, <laughs> We grew up with such garbage, yeah, you and I. Really uh, the, the 1980s were a dark time for children's entertainment, and unfortunately, it was effective. The, this way of sort of cross-promoting toys and shows and making mm-hmm. sure that it was part of every facet of the marketplace. You can get Transformers show, you get Transformers toy, and you get Transformers cereal. Like, just anywhere you go, it's there. Yeah. That penetrated, and it's in people's yeah. consciousness, it's, and people I, have, people's like, People's childhoods deep... are, like, indelibly connected to products. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, really not a great way to go. Th- things that were, like, very obviously being sold as products. There was no artistic uh, pretenses here. Yeah, but occasionally, uh, accidentally, something would be good or better than you think. Was, but or, yeah, it was entirely by like yeah, some some weird you, artist would infiltrate look, that there, and like put all of these shows were made by adults. Mm. There were there weren't like twelve year olds writing them. They were all made by adults trying to figure out what kids would like. And occasionally, someone would stumble upon a good idea or an mm. interesting character. I still maintain that Starscream is as good a character as any character Shakespeare ever devised. <laughs> that he was trapped in Transformers is the greatest tragedy mm. of Starscream. He's he's this pathetic character who wants to like murder the leader, uh-huh. but is is and he's really devious about it, and he's really openly devious about yeah. it, and yet the bad guy keeps him around in this like Machiavellian sense because he's the only because he's the only other person on his team who's competent, and there's something really yeah. tragic about that that dyad. <laughs> I, like seriously, Don't hate like, me, I'm stupid. I'm like, stupid. Like Megatron would like stub his metal toe, and then all of a sudden, Scarface would say, "I'm Megatron the leader. Has fallen. <laughs> I am the leader of the look." Oh, Starscream. You, you want scamp. It, you want it so bad. Squeaky wheel, man. <laughs> Squeaky wheel. And again, that was totally by accident. Of course. Nobody's of course. thinking we're going to make this Shakespearean character. No, no, thinking all they, the nuances they, of they, Starscream. They just gave, they just happened to like, well, we have, we're coming up with 40 different characters. What does Starscream bring? I don't know. Yeah, Iago? Yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's just, he's pathetic and he's like always trying to take Richard over. Richard III yeah. type fucking. <laughs> Great. Anyway, that's we've got mail. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. We love you. 
We love you so much. Thank you for writing in. We we like that you're interested in a lot of different things. We're talking cool? about uh, we talk about Bergman dinosaurs. <laughs> we talked about can, can the title of this episode be Bergman versus dinosaurs? Sure, Ingmar Bergman versus the dinosaurs. Part you know one. what? You know what? Mm-hmm. Normally, I try to do something a little bit more like just focus on like one question and make it punchy. Mm. But this time, yes. <laughs> okay. Let me. Ask, but in order, but in order to get that question, we have mm-hmm. to ask who would win in a fight, mm-hmm. Ingmar Bergman. Or the dinosaurs. Well, the dinosaurs would come charging in with their dino cannons, and they'd be able to like go out to Pharaoh, where it's really peaceful, <laughs> the island where Bergman is just meditating. And they'd land on the shores, and they'd look around, and everything would be quiet. And they'd wander, wander into the woods, and realize that there's no hope. <laughs> but how did Bergman do that to them? <laughs> not, it's just the, the quietude of the place. That's not... See, no. Well, you see, the dinosaurs live by a code of war, and they've been fighting a long time, and it's eroded their souls. They just sit on the shore... And they look at the Thank ocean. you, everybody, for listening to and We've they, Got Mail. You can write weep. us at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. <laughs> Don't forget, you can also listen to a ton of other content here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. we got new movie reviews at Critically Acclaimed. We have reviews of TV shows that lasted only one season or less at Cancelled Too Soon. We have our upcoming Star Wars podcast, Episode Zero, where we're going to talk about all the movies that inspired Star Wars. And we're going to start with the classic 1930s Flash Gordon serial. So mm-hmm. if you want to uh, watch those and prepare for the first episode... And we'll one week, maybe two, uh, you can. Mm-hmm. And you can you can track those down. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can get a ton of exclusive content, including bonus podcasts like Only the Best, where we review every film ever nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and uh, also all our yesterdays, where on a weekly basis we are walking you through every episode of Star Trek in production order. And there's a ton of other stuff. Mm. Besides, our next commentary track that we're going to be doing will be for Citizen Kane. Why? Because people <laughs> asked for it. Great. Mm. I love it. Um, yeah, so again, letters at net. If you want to write in, we'll read your letters if... Time permits, and we'll read as many as we can. Uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, sincerely yours, us. <laughs> <laughs>